You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Uh, you know, it's funny. So I used to be a business consultant. I used to travel the country and teach leadership skills and tools to people and this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I'm telling you, one of the big names that came up all the time was Rosabeth Moss Cantor. She is a leadership guru. And um, interestingly, her background also is in sociology. So that's why she kept mentioning that, you know, she's a people person. This is about people. She's not just a, you know, an infrastructure wonk that just loves the political and the um, the civil engineering of infrastructure. She's not like that. She understands it's about people. And so as as we do this little coach's corner right now, I want you to be thinking about your own life, your own infrastructure. My, my family, um, we're going on a trip to, I'm not telling you where, it's a private little thing. We're going on a little vacation. The people we're sharing a condo with or a cabin with, um, they said it's going to be about a five-hour drive. Well, none of us checked. None of us checked. We just trusted them. And uh, come to find out, it's about an eight-hour drive. You know, oops, three more hours to the drive. What's the big deal? But in the end, uh, three hours is a big deal. So how we figured this out is we just pulled out our phone and got our Google Maps out and entered in the address and found the exact route, three routes actually, to this location. And each route has a different kind of terrain, but it also has different roads. And from two-lane highways to, you know, nicer highways and, and better infrastructure. And I'm sitting there thinking, that was not even possible 50 years ago, to even necessarily find it that quickly, have every turn off, everything figured out, you'd still have to go find a map. If you found a map, you probably wouldn't have the right map at the right level of detail that you would need. So you'd probably need to go get four maps or three maps. And so think about how much life has changed. Now in one app in my hand, I can figure it out and find it. But do I use that technology? Do I use that to make my life better? Uh, one of the things that Dr. Rosabeth Moss Cantor has talked a lot about is the probably the number one innovation in infrastructure is the cell phone. The cell phone is changing the entire game because now there's all of these apps that we can use to lead our lives by. But if you're not using the apps, if you're not figuring out how to work it, and if you're not voicing to the app makers what your desires are, your needs are, if you're not innovating, then you, again, might be part of the problem. Really quickly, she gave us six keys to leading positive change, but she never went through all of them. Let me just give you the six keys so you can be thinking about it. And again, go find this. Um, she has a, a TED Talk on this. She's wonderful. Uh, just go look up under Rosabeth Moss Cantor. She's, her first rule is show up. Get your voice in the game. Be present. Don't just complain. Get in the game. Um, be an example. Make yourself available. Be present. Get in the game, right? 
show up. Number two, speak up. When you're there, use your voice. I'm using my voice on, as a radio talk show host to help educate you on this. You use your voice, whatever your circle of influence is. If it's just, you know, if it's a church member, share your ideas with your friends and family at church. If it's just, if it's a parent, share it with your kids. Teach your kids about better uh use of technology to influence the infrastructure. Teach your kids about the complexity of these issues so that they can become thought leaders and um, and make a difference. Third, look up, meaning look to your higher principles and your values. There's a bigger vision to life than one more freeway. When, you're, when your school is trying to take out a bond for the school, there's more to life than another bond for one more school. Is there a way in that bond to actually have other technologies created instead of just a building? Is there a way to start having other values become in play? Also identify what your values are, and if, you know, if you're a religious type of person, make sure those values are also being used in, um, in, these, in the idea-making. Fourth, team up. Everything goes easier when you have partners. Nothing is more difficult than if you have to do it on your own, so start finding the leverage partners to make a difference. Companies are doing this. Political leaders are doing this. If you want to make a change in any way, you've got to eventually team up with the people that know what they're doing. And once you team up with people that know what they're doing, you know, there might be a cost associated with that, but there's also a benefit. Number five, she teaches us never give up. Everything that you the, uh, everything will look like a failure when you're in the middle of it, so don't give up. Just keep going. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Giving up is the failure. Just stick at it. Uh, Nelson Mandela stuck at it 27 years and before he gave up. And finally, lift others up. Share your successes with others. Make sure you're lifting the human race and making life better. Look out for the little people as well. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as part of the Coach's Corner, one of the things I wanted to just quickly talk about is, you know, we were just talking about paranoia. And mental health in general is something we're just not paying enough attention to. And yet every week we have a new story, at least, major headline, of a shooting here, of, you know, a hostage situation there. You've heard of murder-suicide. You've heard of all of these different things. Uh, They all make the news. And those are all examples of mental health gone awry. So I wanted to run through a wonderful article I found on World of Psychology and on Psych Central um, by Margarita Tartakovsky, who um, wrote uh, an article on the mental health Nine myths about mental illness and therapy, okay? Nine myths we got to keep straight. So you think about your life, your family, your relationships. Uh, Myth number one, having mental illness means you're weak. The reality is, no, you know, about uh, overall, uh, every one of us are going to have some experience with mental illness, either our own or someone else's that we love and we care care a lot about. You're not weak because you have mental illness. You're just normal. Right, normal people, just like you don't think people that have diabetes are weak. Mental illness is—it's you know—it's it could be anything from anxiety to depression. It could be um, paranoia, as we learned about just a few minutes ago. Myth number two: Anyone who behaves erratically is bipolar or borderline. Don't be throwing those titles around. Those are actual clinical distinctions. Bipolar and borderline personality disorders, they're different things. And just because someone's a little erratic, it could be, you know, they're running for office. <laughs> that might be the key. Just, I mean, instead, just say, hey, are you running for office? Uh, myth number three, people with mental illness don't lead productive lives. Not true. 
a lot of people with high profile uh, people with mental illness include Harrison Ford, Halle Berry, Terry Bradshaw, all uh, living with depression. So the reality is a lot of really successful people. In fact, remember, it's just a percentage of all the people have mental illness. So it's negative. People do live productive lives. Uh, myth number four, psychotherapy is like talking to a friend. Eh, kind of. But it's also like talking to an educated friend that's going to help you get maybe deeper into your issues and help you question your own you know, foundation. What's going on? Why did you – how did you get this thought going and how do you keep that thought going? So it's a powerful tool for you. Um, myth number five, seeking psychotherapy means you have serious problems. Not really. Sometimes it's just, you know, you need a little help. You need a little direction. You need to change some negative beliefs or some patterns. Myth number six, therapists tell you what to do. Uh, You know what? They don't dole out advice usually. What I've uh, found and learned is that most therapists are there to just help you notice your patterns and help create self-awareness. There are some that will also, you know, be more solution-oriented if that's what you want. A lot of times we call those coaches. Um, Therapists are really there to make sure you can break some some ties of dependency. Myth number seven, medication is enough to treat mental illness. Actually, the research shows uh, mental uh, illness, if you treat it with medication and psychotherapy, tends to work more effectively. So if you are somebody that is has a mental uh, health issue and you're only taking medication, it might be smart for you to go get some other help uh, with a therapist because that would actually double your double your benefit. Myth number eight, having a parent with mental illness guarantees you'll struggle too. Not so. You might be predisposed. You might have a tendency. You might have other corollary effects, right, secondary effects because of your parent's mental illness. But the reality is is it doesn't necessarily indicate you're going to have it. And myth myth number nine, alcoholism and substance abuse are the result of poor lifestyle choices. Addiction is a disease, though, folks, so that's not true. I mean, it could be impacted by your lifestyle, obviously, and we've talked about that on the show before, And um, but it also could be part of a mental health issue. In fact, a lot of people suffering addiction suffer with that. We're going to take a break, my friends, so stick with us, trying to help you find the good in the world. It's no secret that fighting about money puts a huge strain on a relationship. In fact, money issues are so troublesome uh, that the people that, that they're now cited as the number one reason for people um, as they go into marriage counseling. That's the number one topic they have issues with money. The holiday season doesn't help with those stresses, right? Because we're starting to uh, you got to buy stuff. We all have different expectations. We maybe haven't planned with a budget. So here to help us today is Matt Bell. He's a full-time personal finance writer and speaker and uh, is also serving as managing editor at SoundMind Investing while speaking also at, uh, you know, doing public speaking at churches, universities all all over the country. And we're honored to have him today to talk about an article he wrote, 10 Ways to Prevent Money from Ruining Your Marriage. Matt Bell, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be with you, Matt. So money, I mean, it seems like the problem can't be we all have too much money, right? So (laughs) the problem must be we just don't know how to talk about the money. Is that it? 
You know, there's a lot um, going on there. I mean, especially, you know, money's troubling enough for a lot of us, uh, regardless of whether we're married or not. Right, if you're by yourself, yeah. Yeah. But once you get married, now you've got this clash of of different upbringings and different expectations and different habits and practices and different temperaments. And so it's just this minefield that that many couples find it difficult to navigate. Is it – I guess this is an age-old issue, right? This has been going on forever and it must be because this, is, this isn't just the economy. I'm sure it's worse during bad economic times. But it also gets back to some very deep-rooted issues of power, right, of control. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you know, people say that opposites attract. But actually the research says that, that on many dimensions, um, op- people that, that tend to be attracted to a marriage partner that is very similar to them on many dimensions, but money is not one of them. Money tends to be a topic that people tend to differ on. They tend to be attracted, like spenders tend to be attracted to savers and vice versa. And that's kind of cute and fun when you're engaged or just dating. But then you get married, and it's maybe not so cute anymore. <laughs> yeah, now it's just annoying. Now, you it's interesting because you started your career as a radio journalist. How did you, how did you eventually get to this topic? It was through the School of Hard Knocks. I mean, it started out uh, great. I, I got an inheritance, unexpected inheritance from an uncle when I was in my 20s. I was working in radio, as you mentioned. And, uh, and I enjoyed that, that career, but I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to do anything. And, I mean, it was 60 grand, which, you know, let's put it in context, but still, it seemed like all the money in the world to mm. me. And so, long story short, I created my dream job. I loved to golf and travel, so I created a newsletter for golfers who travel. And uh, two years later, I was 20 grand in debt. So, uh, very humbling, very embarrassing to wake up to the, the fact that I had squandered this amazing opportunity, but it was life-changing. It really got me in the game and got me focused and got me interested in figuring out the whole financial thing, and it's become my life's work. Mm, that's powerful because – and you also you, – you went about solving your own problem. That's what one of the things I see with a lot of experts that we interview. They just had to figure out their own answers and why not research it and then share it. Yeah, there's nothing like having been there and done that. I mean, I feel like it adds some credibility when I get up in front of people and I talk about the fact that I've, I once had $20,000 of credit card debt, and that was depressing, literally. It was humbling. It was difficult. It, it took me four and a half years to pay it all, all off, and a lot of people have debt, so I can relate. I know what that feels like, and I know the path of how to get out and stay out. You wrote a book titled uh, uh, Money and Marriage. Is when you think about it, as far as, you know, having kind of gone through it and and survived it, for the hopeless person out there that's thinking, ugh, I'm done, I'm sick and tired of having these fights about it, is, can you learn this and can you eventually, you know, create a healthy relationship on money? Absolutely. I mean, it it starts with being teachable and, and, and that's a difficult place sometimes. People sometimes have a difficult financial situation, but they want the easy way out. They want the, the quick path. And, and you know, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be a quick path out. You know, for me, like I said, it took me four and a half years. And, and during that time, that was difficult. I wanted to get out of debt faster. But looking back, I, I, it took that much time to not only change some financial habits and practices, but to change my mindset around money, the way I thought about money, some of the attitudes and, and beliefs I had about money. And that's become a path that has, has had traction. It, is, it has stayed present in my life. And so for sure, someone who's struggling, someone who's listening to this that's, that's under a lot of debt or other types of financial stress, Absolutely. And it starts with that commitment. And then there are a lot of resources and a lot of sources of encouragement out there and available to you. Mm. 
Mm. Talk about it. Let's get into some of the 10 ways. Your article was in Forbes magazine, if I recall, 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Uh, The first one, don't set yourself up for disaster. I guess that's not getting into debt quickly. What is that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times uh, couples, you know, that your wedding day is a big day. You know, I get that. that that's true for, you know, that's just a fact. Um, but, but so many couples do themselves long-term damage by throwing the elaborate wedding, the wedding they can't really afford. The average cost of a wedding today is over twenty-five grand, and that's just the average. Mm. It gets much higher than that in, in some of the bigger cities. And so make that commitment from the beginning that, hey, we can have a nice wedding, but we're not going to go into debt for this. Let's make it a memorable day, but let's not have the memory be that for the next five years we have this huge bill that we have to pay. That's so true. They, I mean, you got to – if you all of a sudden burden yourself with debt, you're starting out in a hole. Yeah, and, and debt is like a cancer in marriage. I mean, there's a lot of research out there, and I think it's intuitive for anybody like myself who's been there and done that with debt. Um, it's destructive in your relationship with the person you're going to spend your life with. It, it creates stress. It creates sometimes the blame game. So don't get your marriage off to the wrong start by, by starting out with a bunch of debt. So true. Um, also discuss your demons. A lot of times when we're getting married, we don't, we don't want the demons to come out until, you know, we're well into the marriage. So uh, how, what are some of the demons we should be watching for? There are so many, and that's why in, in the book I wrote about money and marriage, that it starts with a whole bunch of questions that I encourage couples to talk through, because there's so much from our backgrounds. You know, we're getting married later in life these days, and so you know, the longer you wait, the, the more you have time to build up some of these habits, and, and your, your upbringing, how your parents did the whole money thing. Did they fight about money? Were they stressed about money? Was there never enough money? Um, talk about uh, some of your early experiences. Like I said, I had this difficult experience with debt, so were there some memorable experiences in your own life or perhaps a, an ancestor's life that, that shaped your view of money? Start to just talk and be a student of each other and, and create that open environment where you can really talk, tell the truth about some of your experiences and some of your expectations around money. Mm. Again, I can just see, because I see so many clients and they come and we start talking and there were even signs before the marriage of these problems, but we're so enamored with each other. We just, we give each other the benefit of the doubt so much, but down the road, you know, the negativity seeps in and, and we we might even make up demons that don't exist. And we certainly uh, avoid certain discussions too early in the relationship. We got to find a way to talk about the real issues. That's right. And, and we've got to create a way, and like I said, that safe environment where the other person can truly feel okay about opening up about some things, because otherwise it will eventually come to, to the surface, and, and sometimes in some really troubling ways, you know, after, after you're down the road a little bit. Um, I tell a story in the book, it may sound kind of, you know, not like such a big deal, but when we got, when we were engaged, um, and that's when we had our first argument, my wife Jude and I, so we never really fought about things while we were dating, but then we got engaged, and it was in registering for gifts, as crazy as that sounds, (laughs) that we realized we had such a big difference in how we, we viewed things like design, so... I liked modern design. She liked more traditional, more intricate, you know, patterns and things. And so as we started to choose gifts that other people were going to spend their money on, it wasn't even our money, um, we, we actually had a pretty serious disagreement about that. 
uh, because I started to realize that everything down the road that we're going to purchase from now on, I may have to accept something that I don't really like. And so it was ultimately helpful to start moving toward each other on that. But there are things like that that you don't even realize what's lurking underneath until you start talking about it. It's so so true. Um, And I mean, these are everybody has a different mindset about not just even their art and what they you know, you can buy a pair of six hundred dollar shoes. Hello. Um, No, you can't. So we fight about shoes, but but there's deeper issues going on. One of your points is to understand your partner's money mindset, how they think and see money. Talk about some things we can do. What can we do to understand how they think about money? Yeah, one of the most powerful things, I think, is to understand each other's temperament. This has been huge for me. And so, you know, there's different ways to classify temperaments and, and kind of define temperaments. But the, the longest running one dates all the way back to Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, where he defined the, the choleric, the sanguine, the phlegmatic, and the, um, yes, I always forget them when I start rattling them off, and the melancholy. <laughs> and, and so if you start to understand that these are how, these are elements of how you're designed, this isn't going to change for you. And so if you devote your life to changing your spouse on something like temperament, it's going to be a difficult life. They're not going to change. And so, but if you understand each other's temperament, their natural wirings, yours and theirs, now you can start to see the implications for money. So, for example, a sanguine. A sanguine is a very outgoing, life of the party, really enjoyable sort of person to be with. You, you know, everybody loves sanguines. But when it comes to using a budget, sanguines have no time for that, no patience for that. So if you're going to devote your life to getting your sanguine spouse to love the budget, give up on it. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to happen. You know, just get them to drop their receipts in the vicinity of your computer where you be the one to enter the information into your budget. Um, so there's some information in the book on how to understand your own temperament and your spouse's temperament. But, man, it is so revealing when you really get that and you start to see the financial implications of that and can begin to orient how you're going to manage money together around each other's strengths instead of trying to change a weakness. That is such a valuable insight um, because you can be a, a strong organizer, um, but – Fine. Instead of complaining about it, hating it, and keep assuming they're going to change, just be the one that does what you want to do. Just do it. Like, I mean, I guess that's easier said than done, except you can fight the sanguine, as you're saying, um, or you can understand them and do what you can to include them in your method. That's right. And and it takes some time. But if you're really thoughtful about this, and I think that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of marriage. My wife and I have been married for 17 years now. You know, be a be a lifelong student of your spouse. That's a that's a fun thing to do. A great approach to it. And you'll you'll uncover new aspects to their personality over time and you'll learn to work through these things. But but temperament is so helpful. So you know, the phlegmatic. So my wife's primary temperament type is, is melancholy or secondary is phlegmatic. We usually have a primary and a secondary. The phlegmatic is kind of slow and steady. So they like to take their time with things. In the restaurant, they want to see all the options. And when they're going to research a purchase, they want to really get the details. A little bit harder time pulling the trigger, making the decision. And so I'm thankful that some of my wiring, I'm primarily choleric, secondary melancholy, 
So I, I can encourage her to make decisions maybe more quickly, but I can also force the issue, and that doesn't work so well. So we've had to learn to figure out how do these different temperaments work together over time. That's great. Uh, be a lifelong student of your spouse. It just it seems like a no-brainer. We'll take a break. We're speaking again with Matt Bell. If you go to the website, mattaboutmoney.com, um, great resource for you there. And we're talking about the 10 ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion, helping you love stronger and staying financially solvent as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Money impacting your marriage? Sinking it? Well, joining us on the phone, Matt Bell is here. Ten ways to prevent money from ruining your marriage. It was an article he wrote in Forbes magazine. If you go to mattaboutmoney.com, you can read uh, more of his insights there, um, as well as uh, check out some of his books and um, just speaking opportunities and everything that, uh, that Matt is out there doing. Matt, thank you again so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. So continue uh, teaching us some of the principles. Uh, we You've already taught us don't set yourself up for disaster, discuss your demons, understand your partner's money mindset. What about, uh, you know, getting on the same page? Yeah, getting on the same page is, is really important, and that takes a number of different forms. I mean, one of the most important things is it's having common goals, and, and that is often not natural. We don't tend to naturally gravitate toward the same things. I mean, men and women in general tend to value different things. Uh, uh, so men tend to value electronic gear. Women tend to value travel, things like that. And, of course, you know, individuals are, are unique in these areas as well. So, you know, again, it comes back to conversation, and it, and it gets down to prioritizing things, and it gets down to, you know, leadership in the household. I think sometimes the, the best thing in a marriage is to be sacrificial toward your spouse. And so, you know, look, if they want to pursue a certain vacation this year, and that might prevent you from getting the, you know, kayak you wanted to buy, well, so be it. I mean, hopefully uh, we've got long lives to live, and so we can get the kayak next year. Um, hmm. So it's really about conversation and working together, and and you know, as, as it may not, this may not sound like the most appealing idea, perhaps to single people, but but you know, it's really about dying to self, and um, that really I, I have found I'm not perfect at it, certainly, but I, but I think that that's a great way to approach marriage, and and certainly when talking about these different financial goals that we all have, it's almost the perfect test, right? I mean, to make a marriage work, there has to be a level of selflessness, of sacrifice. And it, it just seems like many of us are surprised by the fact that that has to happen. Yeah, that's so right. I mean, I got married in my 30s, and I remember it was kind of like a light switch. I, I started thinking differently when I realized I was ready to be married. I, I wasn't ready before that. I was way too into doing my thing whenever I wanted to. And, and uh, you know, and, and that is okay for a time, you know, but, but when you're going to get married, now it's got to be perhaps you're excited about um, being with this other person and discovering what they're into and, and seeing if you can find some common ground. Mm. You, um, you, you bring up the phrase, you say, don't ignore the B word. And I'm assuming the B word is budget. 
Yeah, absolutely. People are terrified of doing a budget, or is it just they're, they, they don't know how? What is it? Well, they hate the idea because of preconceived notions. I, I ask people in workshops, if a budget were a person, who would it be? And people <laughs> typically say Scrooge or the Grinch, and one person even said the devil. You know, wow. the budget yeah. gets a bad rap as a bad PR person or something. Um, but, but I think of a budget as really the single most powerful tool that people can use to manage money well. Um, people that use a budget describe it as freeing because now you have information. Now you know where your money's going, and you can be more intentional about how to use it um, toward some of your most important goals. And within the context of marriage, so we use an online budget tool that we also have our investment accounts tied into. Either one of us at any moment, if we have Internet access, whether at home or you know, through our phone, we can pull up in, in very short order, how are we doing financially? How much have we spent on groceries this month so far compared to the amount that we intended to spend on groceries this month? And, and that's freeing. That's powerful because that enables you to not go in debt. That enables you to have the money for the fun stuff like vacations and, and other things like that. Hmm. And you, again, it's it becomes this pattern that can keep you on track, right? I mean, the the very f- fact that you have a system to keep you on track it's 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 the reason why most of us don't drive off on the dirt uh, when we're just you know going to grandma's house because there's a road there, and we once we have the road there and the path there, it's just even if you're not consciously paying attention, you can stay on the path. Yeah, it, it's accountability. And people find that when they just start using a budget, even if they don't quite get it right the first time, and nobody gets it right the first time, but if they just start using one, they tend to start spending less because they know they're going to have to write it down or it's going to be captured electronically. And, and look, a budget is not about deprivation. It's, I don't even like the term frugal, actually. Mm. I, I, I like the phrase spending smart. And, and with a budget, you can spend smart. You can allocate the money toward the things that really matter. You can hopefully get together at a moment of low emotion and calmly talk through your priorities and your objectives and figure it out. You know, you've only got so much money coming in each month. How are we going to allocate that? You do that together. You agree on that together. And now you're tracking it and, and actually proactively managing it. It, it actually it, it works out really well. Hmm. One of the biggest things I've seen that is a sign that you're off target with your spouse is the minute you you have secrets and you're hiding stuff. One of your rules is to stop keeping the secrets, create transparency. Yeah, and that's where a budget can really help. Um, There are a variety of uh, research studies out there on this topic. They talk about financial infidelity. You know, something like 70% of married couples, uh, you know, one spouse believes it's okay to keep secrets um, uh, from the other person financially. And and you know what? That's not helpful in a marriage. Mm. And so what I encourage couples to do is I say before marriage, full financial disclosure, and after marriage, complete financial transparency. So, like I said, we, either one of us can pull up our financial situation within a minute. We just have to log on to our, our budget, and we can see now there's transparency. So there isn't really an opportunity to be keeping secrets now. You've, you've built in a structure in your life that prevents you from keeping secrets. And what do you think about uh, merging accounts? I've seen a lot of couples that think, you know, I'll keep my money, you keep your money, and then that way we don't have to have these fights about money because we'll just always have our own money. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the roommate approach. Right. I mean, that's not, not really the marriage approach. You know, the mar- marriage is really about oneness. 
And I'm all about looking at ways that we can arrange our use of money that fosters oneness in marriage. And so I, I advocate uh, joint accounts wherever possible. Some accounts you can't make a joint account, like an individual retirement account. It's an individual retirement account. But the accounts you can merge and have it be a joint account, like a checking account or a savings account, I encourage people to have those be joint accounts because, again, it fosters accountability, communication, and teamwork. Mm. You bring up in your article um, the need to give each other space, but you also use a term that I love, and this is these are kind of two of your points in one. Um, you call it cost per use. So when you're purchasing something, you, you suggest we evaluate it using kind of a cost per use mentality. It's an interesting idea. It's not original to me, so I want to uh, acknowledge that. But but it's a it's a great concept. I really like it. It's the idea that you know again we talked about goals earlier, and so if your goal is to buy an expensive pair of shoes, well, okay, maybe we can make that happen. But let's th- maybe it's helpful to think about you know how often are you going to use those? It'll be for a very fancy occasion, and so maybe over the next two years, maybe there are 10 of those occasions. So you divide the cost of the shoes by 10, and you get your cost per use versus, you know, maybe we want a, a better TV. We're tired of that uh, huge monster black and white thing that, you know, doesn't even work very well. And, you know, as a family, maybe we watch TV um, several times a week. And so you look at the cost of use of that and you say, actually, maybe that's a better investment of our resources because we're going to be using that more mm. frequently. And and then, because it is, it's a, it's a way to, that's how we usually justify not buying a boat, Right. Because it's only four yeah. times a year, and the neighbors are, you know, the neighbors never use their boat. Um, this, I guess, it comes down to how we're going to treat each other, right? And one of your points um, is remember the golden rule. Yeah, I mean, treat each other as you as you you want to be treated yourself is a is a great principle. Um, I even like I've heard a number of people talking about the platinum rule: treat people how they want to be mm. treated. So that gets back to the temperament thing, where you understand how they're wired up, and and so maybe that takes it beyond how what you might want. Now it's about thinking about what they might want, and and that changes that dynamic there a little bit as well. Um, but there's there's some great research out there about disagreements, and so people say, oh, I, we never fight about money. I actually don't like to hear that. That that concerns me a little bit because I don't think it's very realistic. We're always going to have some clashes, and so I think the more interesting and, and more helpful way to think about it is how are we going to have disagreements? And um, one of the researchers whose work I really like is a guy named John Gottman. He's been studying marriages yeah. for decades now, and he talks about the fact that, that how you fight is really um, indicative of the health of the marriage. And so you want to make sure that you're, it's okay to complain about things. You can say, look, you know, we overspent in entertainment this month. Okay, that's a complaint. But don't make it a criticism. Don't make it personal. You know, how could you be so insensitive to spend so much money without, you know, talking to me about that first? Well, now it's starting to get personal. That's not so good for a marriage. And, and a guideline that he offers I think is especially helpful is to say, listen especially for any words that sound contemptuous. So if you're really taking your, your spouse to task in such a way that, it, that it's contemptuous, you know, that, he says, is a real red flag that that marriage is in trouble. Now it's not a financial disagreement anymore. Now it's much deeper than that. So it's okay to complain, not, not so great to criticize, and definitely watch out for the use of, of contempt. Mm. And when you get to a point where, I guess, you... You're not making any ground. You're turning to contemptuousness. You're angry at each other. You can't 
get headway, you don't know how to make a budget, you suggest you call for reinforcements. I guess that could be financial reinforcements, but also therapists, coaches, whatever. Yeah, for sure. Life coaches, therapists, good friends. I mean, uh, you know, if, if the couple is a church-going couple, perhaps there's a small group at, at church that they could get involved in, and, and that can just foster some really healthy, um, perhaps modeling from other couples of, of a healthy marriage, but just really an atmosphere to be able to figure out the whole marriage thing out loud. Um, bringing in some outside um, unbiased sources can be really, really helpful. So true. And Honestly, a, a breath of fresh air, really. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we appreciate you, Matt. Uh, Matt Bell's his name. Go to his website, mattaboutmoney.com. So focused, so dedicated to that one topic, and uh, but it really can open up your mind there. Um, he's done a ton of research and uh, has lived through it himself. Matt Bell is his name. We'll take a break. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. If you've ever struggled to reach your own child and connect with them and and you got to boy you're trying to parent them but you just don't seem to know how to to get the parenting in without being a jerk we got a great guest for you now kim giles is joining us she's the president and founder of clarity point coaching popular life coach author and speaker she's a contributor on the show she's on here regularly and uh, she's going to walk us through how to parent a difficult child kimberly giles welcome to the matt townsend show Matt. How are you? Good to be here. Very good. Good to have you back. Now, you wouldn't have any experience parenting a difficult child. Oh, all seven of mine are just angels. (laughs) Gifts from heaven. (laughs) Of course. All of us go through rough spots with some of them, and usually they're the ones that are the most like us that we have trouble with. Isn't that funny? They bother you because they, they, like, remind you of you. All right. Scary. What yeah. what are we supposed to do and and how do we kind of take a more psychological approach about this? Well, you know my specialty, I try to make psychology super simple. And so I've realized that there's really only two types of of people in the world. I mean, we could really narrow ourselves down to two categories. And the first is people who need control to feel safe. And the second is people who need approval and validation to feel safe. And the first step to really understanding the dynamic between you and, and the child in question is to figure out first for yourself, are you somebody who needs control or who needs validation and approval, reassurance about your value to feel safe? And then you've got to look at your child. So let me give you a some ideas of what they might look like so listeners could figure out where they are and where their child is. So if you're a control-focused parent, you might be really overly focused on tasks and things and like a lot of order and structure, everything in its place. You might like to run your home, you know, like a tight ship. And this may mean you'll lose your temper or feel walked on or taken from anytime the kids won't immediately do what you want. Right, because you you've, you're losing control. 
right? So you might be kind of a perfectionist, that kind of a parent. Now, if you have a child that's control-focused, you probably have power struggles with that child all the time because these children want freedom and choices and control more than anything else. So they're going to fight you, and they may manipulate you, defy you, anything to, to feel like they have the right to make their own choices. That, that, and, and the right to make their choice, it's, uh, what does it do for them? Well, basically, it just makes them feel like they have the right to be them. Yeah, they can. I mean, yeah, they can do it their way. It, it gives them. Yeah. I guess it can alleviate some of the anxiety of let me just be me. Absolutely, and and you probably already know if you have a child that needs control. Because mm-hmm. right? they've been taking it, right? They, they've been grabbing at it for it years, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, if you're a validation and approval focused parent. Your biggest fear is actually looking bad or being criticized or judged or anything that makes you feel like you might not be good enough. And parents that are in this boat can sometimes be really strict because they're so worried about the children not making them look bad. Mm -hmm. Or they could be really overly lenient because they're always trying to get the kid to like and approve of them. So you kind of have to look at yourself on both ends with this one. And and the crazy thing about it, if, if you're a validation, approval-seeking parent, your child kind of can feel this from you. Huh. And, and they may even lose respect for you, especially the more that you make everything about them. I actually remember a day when one of my children was in trouble, and the first place I went is, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Right? And and that child got really mad. This is not about you. Yeah, mom. Don't make this about you, mom. <laughs> right? Don't you love that when they <laughs> they they peg you? They they yeah, boy. Yeah, read you right. Exactly right. accurate. So um, the other thing that might happen if you're an approval or validation parent is is you might be so focused on on proving your worth. You might be a workaholic. You might be really focused on your own project. And and your child will also feel like they're the last in line, right? So that can lead to problems. Yeah, like they feel like they you always have a project. Everyone else is important is ahead of you because, and you don't even end up um, knowing. You don't even end up like sensing your parents care about you because they don't. They want to look good. They don't want to. They, they they don't seem to. You know, they're more embarrassed by you than caring for you. Yeah, and kids kids can pick up on that if if that's where you are. Now, I also want to describe if you have a child that's very needy for validation or or approval, they're going to do anything to get your attention. And if good behavior doesn't get it, they might try bad behavior. Yeah. Because they just, attention equals love. And, And these kids do want a great deal of praise and reassurance that they're important, that they're special. And if they're not getting that, they're definitely going to act out. Right. So uh, the other thing you kind of have to watch if you've got an approval-seeking child is if you're a control parent and you're trying to keep control, they may feel like they're constantly being disapproved of. And if you've got this validation-seeking child who feels like he can never please you, they may give up trying. They may get passive-aggressive even in order to to rebel back for what they feel like they're not getting. 
so the first thing I want parents to do is just step back from a, for a minute and, and own which of those two camps do you think you're in? Right. What is your primary focus? Are you were a fear of failure parent or are you a fear of loss of control parent? And I, I bet they already know. Yeah, exactly. But see, to know to know what you are is the beginning, right? Because if I know where I am, then I then I can pretty much predict too, and, and I diagnose where my kids are. And we, it depends where you get yourself. I mean, somebody feel comfortable. Some feel comfortable because they seemingly have control. Some feel comfortable and in a sense of worth because they because people are constantly praising them. It's. I guess in the end, it's you got to know yourself, right? And the therapy or any kind of coaching you get to know yourself better is going to open up a bigger repertoire for how you can handle life. I mean, life's going to always push your self-worth right? and your so, self-esteem. So, Matt, the one we didn't mention is if you've got a, an approval, validation-seeking child, Yeah. What what they really need from you is a lot of time, attention, praise. But, but I want parents to be careful what they praise kids about, because we really don't want to focus on their appearance or even their performance. We really want to focus on their attributes and qualities, the things that make them who they are. So I'm always pointing out to my children, you're, you're just such an amazing person. You're so kind. You know, you're good to people. Look at how considerate you are. Those types of, of focuses when we're giving praise make a big difference. Mm. And they help a child learn that their value isn't in question or based on their appearance and performance. And, and if you've got a child that you can tell is very insecure and needy for validation, um, I actually do have another free worksheet on my website that's called Clarity Points for Confident Kids. Great. And, so they and go to claritypointcoaching.com and they look up the worksheet. Uh, programs for Parents. Okay. Cool. And find it on that on that page, and and I just think the more that we can start young, teaching our children a, a more accurate way of seeing their own value and the value of other people, you can set them up for a lifetime of better self esteem. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The younger we start. Well, and a great place to start it. Clarity Point Coaching. That's, I mean, really getting the tools you need as a parent. That's that's half the game, and then just. Learning to execute them and do them, not executing the children, of course, but learning to manage the principles you've learned to get the results. That's awesome. awesome. Man, Kim, you did great. Good job. Thanks again Thank for your you. insight. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Be good. Kim Giles, check her out at claritypointcoaching.com. Wonderful resources there uh, for life and family. Wonderful, interesting tools. You know, there's no end to the learning, right? There's no end. It's just more. We, we always need to learn more. We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. That's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, uh, it's an interesting little, I don't know, contrast for me. As I come back, I, I just spent a week away went to Mexico and uh, visited Cancun and also uh, one of the new wonders of the world, by the way, in, in the new list of seven wonders of the world, 
Chichen Itza is one of the places that we visited. And it, it just it's so interesting to me. And then I come and I do a show today this morning about the political world and all of these decisions that we make. Um, I hear about an old world, uh, you know, 600 to 900 A.D. down in Mexico, a Mayan community. Um, and and really what how how their community turned and how it changed and. Then I come and contrast it to our political world, and I think, first of all, how seriously grateful we all ought to be that we have a democracy where you still have a vote, you still have a say. You may not like what's going on. You may think a lot of it's going to happen with or without you. It still may feel like a coronation for some of these leaders, but there is a big difference between actually just having kings born to kings that then basically run you know, countries or and cultures uh, into extinction, but you still have a say. You still have a lot of blessing and a lot of opportunity here in the United States, and it really, truly, it it was an important, I think, contrast for me to just go learn about these other cultures. I also learned something that, even though they may have been so, you know, uh, so basic, so. Um, I don't know, just base type of of living of humans. They still had the exact same needs, the same wants. They still had kids and children. They still had desires. They still wanted the best for their families, for their lives. Folks, this, you got a shot. You got an opportunity as you're here on this great big ball of mud to do something and to be a part of something. And you really got to get intentional about it because in a few hundred years, a few thousand years you're just an afterthought. Eventually somebody will be, you know, working through your the rubble of your home and, and remember, oh, man, some American must have lived here. It's just crazy how quickly things can change. We were in these incredible ruins, pyramids. We were noticing in a wonderful arena where they would play a game of a sport where the teams would go head-to-head. I was imagining the Super Bowl. But in this Super Bowl game, the loser's captain, whatever team lost, their captain would be killed. So you better win. Can you imagine if in our Super Bowl, the captain of the losing team executed in front of all of the world? Well, that's what was going on back then. And it's interesting because things change, and yet they also can stay very much the same. So please, as we're all sitting here, you know, all of this news is basically setting up our future. It's setting up how we will be seen, what will impact us, what won't. Will you just get into it? Even if you don't want to get into the political side, Start paying attention. Start figuring out what your values are, how you want to be influencing these decisions, these debates. Again, you don't have to get in and fight the good fight, but you should know what's going on. You should know who you're voting for because it is a right that right now at this stage of the world, it's a right that you have the privilege of having. Who knows if it will always stay that way? And I'm not here to scare you, but it will if you make it a point. So get more involved. Get your head wrapped around it because, friends, it's, it's not just always guaranteed. It's not a permanent positive guarantee. And eventually, a 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, 
What will our story be as a country? What will your story be as a person? Will you have connected to your family? Will you have left a legacy for your children, for your grandchildren? It just put in the front of my mind the need to live and to live a good life, a life that could be handed down, a life that you're proud of, a life that you want other people to know about. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Boy, what would the world be like if we could all respect the human dignity in our fellow man? What would it be like if I could actually see the fact that uh, you're more than a male or a female, you're more than a doctor or you know a teacher? What if I could see beyond that, beyond the color, beyond what would it, what would happen to us? How would I treat you differently if I actually could see that deeper, more powerful person in you? C.S. Lewis had a great. Uh, th- uh, thought uh, that I'll kind of paraphrase. I don't. I probably won't do it justice. But if we could just see the deity, the goodness inside of the person we sit next to, uh, he he inferred that we'd we'd have a, t- a desire to fall on our knees to worship them. If we could actually get to the goodness that is inside of every one of us, and then um, we, you know we hear in our political talk, we hear in just all of the legal issues that are going on around the world and the country. We hear in, in uh, you know, every argument about um, class issues, class warfare, cultural issues, diversity issues, male-female issues, just a lack of appreciation and of the seeing the divine. And so how are you doing with that? As you're driving to work, as you're taking care of your family, is there something you can do today, uniquely you, that might help you and me, I'll do it for myself, pick up a game, pick up our game when it comes to respecting the human dignity of others? And is there also a way that we could maybe turn down giving too much power, too much uh, homage and respect to somebody simply because they have material things or they have a, a really powerful talent that is so apparent and obvious? Is there a way that we could start to pay more attention to the things that we don't pay attention to? One of my favorite quotes uh, is says, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in, it's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. It's not the notes that makes the music, it's the space between the notes that makes the music. So the same thing is true when we think about uh, trying to show respect to one another. We have ma- we have material things that would be the bars, and then we have the spiritual things, the the space between the bars. We have the notes, the material things, and we have the space between the notes. And really, it's it's the spiritual human dignity that we all need to remember. And again, we don't have to dichotomize everything. So it's not animals or humans. But it's both, right? You can respect and love your animals, and you can respect and love the dignity of a human. So what would happen if if we could change? And what's the one thing you could do today to become that change? Just think about it. But uh, where could you show more dignity? Could you show it more as a as a parent to protect the dignity of your child? How about to protect the dignity of your parents, your seniors that you might be taking care of? How about to protect the dignity of the people in your community? Think it over, and let's see if we can't elevate our lives by just simply focusing a little bit more on the things we don't necessarily see. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we know to take care of ourselves from the sun, right? 
Now we know. We've learned from Dr. Myers what we need to do. Cover up, right? But what do you do if uh, the the potential cancer-causing entity is your spouse? Have you ever met somebody that was so negative? Ugh. You just felt like they were just killing you. So negativity, it's a big deal. And I believe a lot of us that are negative, we don't even know we are. So I'm going to run you through a quick test. Are you a negative person? 15 signs of negative people that was put together by Robert Locke on the website lifehack.org. 15 signs that you, uh, you're, you're a negative person. Are you ready? And run through and think it through. Because uh, the research actually shows that in order to erase a a negative, you need four positives to erase a negative. So you might be causing emotional cancer to the people around you. You're like the sun, just slowly burning people. Here we go. Negative people always worry. Do you voice a lot of your worries? Uh Anna Monar said, whatever's going to happen will happen, whether we worry about it or not. But the negative person is constantly worrying about what might happen. What about this? What about this? What about this? Okay. Do you tend to worry a lot? Do you try to tell people what to do? Are you bossy? Are you trying to like maneuver the world so that, you know, you get the world in the nice, simple package you'd like it? Negative people tend to try to push their agendas pretty hard. They also live in a default position. The default position is simply, you know, it's better to assume the worst, right? Negative, it kind of goes back to our fight-or-flight brain, which is an alarm system. And so if you always predict and your default is always to be negative, then the fight-or-flight always works for you. You know, you should try to avoid those people. You should leave the party early. You should notice how boring and unfun it is so you don't risk, right? Do you tend to live in the negative default position? Is everything end up going there? Do you enjoy secrecy? Do you have a lot of secrets, private things that you don't let out into the world? You don't show a lot of good stuff because, you know, you don't want people to beat it down. Negative people tend to enjoy a lot of secrets. They tend to be pessimistic, obviously. They're, uh, they're more happy predicting a bad thing happening. For example, oh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be cloudy. Sure, it's, we're on the way to the beach and it's going to be cloudy. Never mind the fact the last three days that it, you started with clouds. They always kind of dissipated. But you didn't notice that. You just noticed that the clouds are going to ruin your day. Negative people tend to limit their exposure uh, uh, to life. You know, so they hide away. They have very, very thin skin. If you say something to a negative person, they might blow up very quickly. If you blow up quickly, maybe you are a negative person. Research has shown that media exposure to violence, death, and tragedy contributes to depression, anxiety, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It colors the negative person's outlook on life. Negative people love coming into your cubicle and saying things like, have you heard the terrible news about, did you see this crazy situation where people were killed? And uh, No, I didn't, but thanks for sharing it. Uh, Negative people tend to complain a lot. Are you a complainer? Do you complain about life, your energy, whatever? 
how horrible things are. Politics. Negative people never move outside their comfort zone. They don't want to do anything that's not fun, that's not easy, that makes them move, that demands some energy or some some movement. Are you one that just stays in your comfort zone? If you can't go to your restaurant, do you throw a fit? If you can't order what you want because they're out of it, do you get mad? Negative people uh, love the word but. Yeah, it's great, but, and then they share the negative side. Again, we're talking about the 15 signs negative people of negative people by Robert Locke on lifehack.org. They love to throw that but in there. Yeah, sure, life's great now, but, you know, school starts in a month. Yeah, it's great now, but, you know, the economy, who knows if it's going to work. Do you use that mentality a lot? Uh, Negative people tend to be underachievers. That lack of success, you know, might be there because they're negative, but it also might simply be there because it's a technique to not ever have to risk, to not ever be exposed, to not ever have to reach out and be something better. Uh, Negative people never get excited about the future. They tend to mitigate the future. They minimize its potential. You know, it's better to stay in the dark, stay in the dark tunnel. But you also, negative uh, people, you could become a vampire, really sucking attention and time and focus and energy out of the people around you. One of the best ways to know if you're a negative person is is it hard for you to find people to hang out with? Do people avoid you like the plague? It's kind of scary. If you're a vampire, you might be because a lot of people don't want to be around you, right? You're too hard to deal with. Negative people miss out on a lot of good things of life. You might notice the very most positive moments of life. They're not there. They've kind of hidden away. Do you notice you're missing your most important moments of life? I'm going to go to the store right now in the middle of your family's party. Yeah, I got to run and get that barbecue sauce. Okay, because we got to have barbecue sauce right now. Last but not least, negative people uh, tend to put a negative spin even on good news. Well, sure, she's cancer-free now, but, you know, it could come back. Wow. Great. Are you a negative person? Because if you are, guess what? You, um, you, you might be taking it out on the people around you. And if you are with somebody that's negative, remember that whatever they're spewing is more a reflection of them than you. This, isn't, this is them. This is not you. And just because they're spewing it doesn't mean you need to take it. So one of the things you might want to just watch out for is very simply don't turn over your self-worth, your self-identity to the most negative person in the room. Don't let them lead your emotion. Even point it out. Oh, there you go again. Laugh at it. Make fun. Have fun with it. Talk to them about it. And still be positive. The benefit of just being positive is you're going to feel better, even if everybody else you know, if this other person is going to feel negative, they can feel that. But that doesn't mean it has to influence you that way. Negative people, folks, it's a big cancer. And uh, I don't want you to just, you know, be naively happy. But I do want you to own your own identity, your own sense of happiness, your own sense of worth. That's the coach's corner, folks. Don't be a negative Nelly. Come on. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. More tools, more ideas right here on the Matt Townsend Show to help you find the good in the world.
One of the more popular topics that we talk about in today's world is the difference between generations, between baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Y. There are differences, and there's some similarities as well. The difference is, though, you know, how they shop, where they might spend their money around Christmas time. Denise Dolliff joins us. She's research director at Wharton School's Baker Retailing Center and is here with us to discuss her research on how different generations shop differently and how uh, we might uh, learn a lot about, um, you know, what to buy, what not to buy, what to watch out for by just understanding some very basic generational differences. Denise Dolliff, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an interesting subject because... Uh, you know, you don't want to just categorize people by their generation, but I know one of your ideas is you, you, you want to know how to reach these generations and, and see if there are differences. Talk to us about the research you've been doing and, um, and what you've been finding. Sure. So, yeah, to your point, you don't want to stereotype uh, generations and say that everybody behaves the same way. But, you know, knowing these bigger patterns, they are really helpful to know for retailers to think about their strategies, how to reach different um, customers. So we teamed up with the NPD Group, um, which is a market research company that has a lot of uh, data on retail transactions. And they actually have a really interesting data set from people, uh, all their receipts of online and offline shopping. So mm. there is a panel of people, I think it's about 16 or more thousand people that keep track of all their expenses. Um, they have an app. They take pictures of their receipts and send them in. And in addition, there are people that have agreed to have their in- inboxes of their email scanned for receipts. So we have a very comprehensive data set of people's. It's a pretty much like a 360 view of wow. people's shopping behavior. Yeah. So as a retailer, of course, you only have your own data, but this gives you data of a person of all their shopping. So that's what we were looking at. And so we were looking at the different patterns by generation. Um, the millennials, we actually split into two groups, younger millennials and older millennials, and we had Gen X and the boomers. And we, we did see some uh, distinct patterns. Uh, some can be explained by your interests during a certain life stage, such as when you have kids or, you know, it, it, an interesting finding was that younger generations, like their expenses went more to kids versus boomers they spent more of their money instead of kids on pets oh really interesting i would have that's interesting i would have thought you'd spend it on travel on i don't know that's interesting pets well we see that too but just in terms of you know sort of pets replace babies Mm -hmm. at a later uh, uh, stage in life so, yeah, we found some interesting patterns for each uh, generation. This is – oh, man, I'm assuming that um, the big, you know, merchant companies are loving this because this gives a, kind of an inside track as to who's buying what and where. What were some of the trends that you saw, I guess, when it comes to just to uh, to some of the – let's say start, I guess, with millennials. How How are millennials different than baby boomers? Yeah, so everybody, of course, is talking about millennials these days. Uh, and it was a, a, a an age group that's of great interest to us as well. So what we found was 
that first of all, one distinct feature is that millennials, of course, they are very tech savvy. They, they grew up with technology and apps. So they actually spent more of their money on, on, on services, actually new services that are app driven, meaning services like Uber and Lyft, all these personal transportation services. Or food delivery services, that's hmm. another uh, big thing for millennials. And, of course, when boomers grew up, we didn't have food delivery uh, <laughs> apps like Seamless or Grubhub, and they're, you know, coming up uh, everywhere. That that was one thing. Uh, then also there, um, we talked earlier about retailers' marketing strategies. So they also respond really well to retailers that are catering to them, like Victoria's Secret or Sephora, that has a very good uh, online and mobile strategy. So we see them, uh, you know, spending more, relatively more of their money um, there as well. Mm. And one really, really interesting finding is, which is so distinct, is that millennials spend a much higher portion of their expenses on gift cards. And, really? Uh, and that's in certain in, in channels like uh, mass merchants like uh, Target and Walmart, but also convenience stores and warehouse clubs. So that's a really distinct wow. finding, and you so, can. So, if you're go going to buy your millennial a gift card, you really, I guess, you buy them convenience stores, uh, on you know, I guess, merchant, Target kind of stores, or Costco. Well, actually, now they, I don't know whether you have seen like these. They call them gift malls. So when you go to a grocery store, you yeah. can, you can also buy uh, gift cards, not just for that grocery store or for that convenience store, but also for restaurants mm-hmm. and for Amazon and for Netflix and all kinds of other services and, and, and stores. So in those channels, we saw that millennials spend much more money on gift cards. And you can... I was actually thinking about, you know, what might be driving this. And, you know, people always say uh, millennials are so convenient, they don't plan ahead. So obviously gift cards are a really easy buy. It's instant gratification. Now with e-gift cards, that's even easier. And this year, thinking of Christmas is falling on a Sunday, so stores will be closed earlier probably on Saturday. So buying an e-gift card... I would think that that this year it will even uh, go up. Hmm. But another thing is also you don't waste um, money pretty much with gift cards because or less money than an unwanted gift. If you give something uh, like a a gift that somebody doesn't want, you know, it's a loss for everybody. You know, I'm unhappy as the giver that I didn't pick the right thing for you. And the the person that receives the gift is unhappy about the gift, has to return it. So a gift card is a, the way more efficient choice. So true. Is it uh, do do uh, baby boomers like gift cards? And if they do, what what would they where would they want to spend their money? Well, actually, gift cards have been popular, of course, across the board. We have seen a lot of growth over the last few years, and they're actually the number one. Uh, wanted uh, Chris or holiday gift. So yes, absolutely. If you give boomers a gift card, they will be as happy. <laughs> mm. And well, what, what we have seen, the boomer profile is they, they 
like stores that are more traditional that have also moved from, let's say, a department stores like Macy's and Kohl's and and Costco and those stores that now are multi-channel retailers where you can also buy online. Um, boomers also they 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 value. They value value. Right. <laughs> so any of the formats like warehouse clubs, off-price retail, they actually shop across categories there, which indicates that they like the the format and the you know the value proposition. But on the other hand, we also see that they are spending more on restaurants, so they indulge selectively apparently. So any experiences um, would probably be a nice gift. Any you know even travels. Maybe and in general, we see a trend toward people liking experiences. So think of maybe a gift certificate for spas or for, you know, like a show or um, maybe a, a trip or something like that. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I did you hear the big? I'm sure you did because it's your industry and your focus. The big uh, success that Amazon had, I guess, 31 percent of the online shopping on. Um, on this Monday, Cyber Monday, went through Amazon. Do, do you sense that the the box stores and some of the kind of more traditional stores, they, if they they have they have to get online or their days are numbered? Is that the future, or where where do you see the future going between online and just the traditional walk in the front door store? I mean, pretty much these days, everything is multi-channel. Even if people don't buy. Oh, uh, let's say even if pe- if the the portion of online purchases is still a fraction of offline, the online channel is so important for information research upfront. Most people that buy at an offline store do research upfront online or on their mobile phones or even in the store. You know, while you're selecting between maybe two options, you're checking your mobile for more information, True, for yeah. reviews, for all of that. So it's definitely important for even for smaller businesses to have an online presence. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily sell everything online. Um, but you definitely for the information search for visual presentation or for even for inspiration and thinking of the holidays making gift suggestions, you know, what to give your, you know, parents or your daughter or, you know, you can You've probably seen that in emails when people make suggestions what to give, you know, such and such person and these per- this person on your list. So having being on multi-channel is definitely important. Hmm. And again, you can be clever about, you know, how to fil- fulfill maybe online orders. Um, but yeah, Amazon, I mean, to your point, everybody's thinking about an Amazon strategy, you know, and I always say you have to have something that that differentiates you you can't compete only on price if you offer the very same thing that right. Amazon offers and that's what's amazing too um, about all this technology is you can now price check and price match and you can do it while I'm standing in your store I can go see what this exact product costs at the store right down the mall that's right and and speaking of stores and to my point of differentiation of course, the big advantage that that retailers with an offline presence have is their store associates. So they can provide advice. 
Uh, they can build a customer relationship. They can tell me when I walk in the store or they can even text me before I come and say, hey, we got like your, you know, something in that I think you would like. So it's this personal connection that they um, that they can provide that Amazon cannot provide online. Hmm. So thinking in a smart way about, you know, how can you be different? What kinds of services can you maybe offer to also take a, a customer's focus off the price? You know, if if it's all about the price, then you probably cannot win in the long right. term against somebody like Amazon. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they can just ship it straight from the factory. Um, exactly. And uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, Denise, I want to talk about – you mentioned in your article the fact that people – there are some stores now where you can find the prices online, but go try them on. Some people still want to try on some of this stuff uh, before they purchase it. So we'll come back and talk about that. I also want to find out what the retailers are thinking. They must love the work you're doing there at um, Wharton, Wharton School of uh, Wharton School Baker Retailing Center, um, where you're trying to gather all the information you can about purchasing habits. Powerful information, folks. It, uh, it helps all of us. It will help, probably help Santa as well. We will take a break more with Denise Dolloff when we come back. to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Denise Dolliff, who is the research director of the Wharton School's Baker Retailing Center, where she is responsible for the center's knowledge creation and dissemination initiatives. Uh, her background is a mix of qualitative and quantitative market and academic research, consulting, publishing, and teaching. And before joining the Baker Retailing Center, Denise worked in Wharton's executive education division. And uh, we're honored to have you on the show. Denise, thank you. Thanks for having me. What uh, was there anything in the study? You performed the study on was it sixteen thousand people? What what a great research uh, group that are willing to give you access to their emails um, and also their credit card receipts. Um, and I know it's all protected and they're secure. What was there anything that just absolutely surprised you, shocked you in the research? Well, maybe not shocking. Like I thought the gift card um, result was really interesting because it was so uh, distinct. Another thing about Generation X, uh, I'm Generation X, and of course you always think like, you know, how does my own generation behave? There wasn't, you know, it's sort of the sandwich uh, generation between the boomers and Gen X. But one interesting thing was that online we saw a a very uh, big spike for ordering like online uh, like pictures and paper products you know thinking of the holidays you know the the holiday cards and and photo calendars that you give to family that seems huh. to be a generation x kind of thing interesting um and another thing about the boomers i mentioned earlier that they are that we are seeing like a reflection of their what they are used to from the offline world like retailers that they are familiar with like department stores from Saks to Macy's to Kohl's to Costco but also the the brand that really uh, sticks out there is QVC. 
Really? Uh, for boomers. Boomers are still uh, doing the, uh, you know, the the QVC television purchasing. Yes, uh, apparently. Interesting. <laughs> According to the data. So yeah. That's why it's good to have, like, so much transparency. Another <laughs> interesting thing, actually, that I recently have observed um just look like you know just looking at the retail press we found that department stores are actually also a generation x kind of thing they really uh like that format um and millennials selectively so millennials with kids actually are not tending so much to department stores they probably buy more with mass merchants but what they do buy if it's when they have kids, they buy appliances more in with in department stores. Um, and now I've also seen they and they they tended to buy at least in the past uh, kids uh, supplies like any apparel and toys more with mass merchants hmm. and less in department stores. Also, maybe because there isn't as much offering. Yeah. And J C Penney actually has responded to this. They have introduced appliances um, and are now also increasing the kids category, which is really interesting, which is so much in line with our research mm. because it shows actually there was like a little bit of a gap and or let's uh, word it as an opportunity for department stores. And JCPenney seems to be right on that trend. Oh, wow. So because so, if department stores aren't careful, then these kind of the big box retailers might be stealing Gen Xers and or, Gen, or millennials with children. Um, is it what? Where do you predict this goes in the future? What What are you seeing fifteen years from now? Because it's it seems interesting that if millennials continue and the younger generations follow some of the trends of millennials, then uh, maybe department stores and QVC might not be around. Years, by the way, is a lot in retail where the pace has accelerated True. so much. So to predict anything uh, for that period of time is hard. But uh, definitely to your point, uh, the Generation X and Z will influence future shopping behavior. And I think there will be, um, we will see a lot. Let's say you have to be more specific and more selective to offer something in your offline stores that is really attractive to your target audience. So it needs to be, you know, the right experience, the right product. It might be right-sizing your stores. Maybe you have to shrink your, you know, the bigger stores into smaller formats. And, and you might not have to stock everything at the store, but be more of a showroom, at least mm. selectively, for some items. Um, and, you know, we have seen that with some of the... The, the retailers that used to be purely online, like Bonobos, the, you know, the, the men's wear um, apparel retailer, they started online and now they have, they realize people still want to try and touch and feel. So they have these, what they call the guide shops, which are small offline stores. They don't stock any inventory, but they have a sample of every style and every color and every size. So you can go to the store, try on the product, and then order it to be shipped to your home. So those kinds of models like smart smart retailing, um, thinking about your costs and people's um, well, what people actually – how people want to like uh, want to shop, 
I think that will be the future of retailing. And you see Amazon, isn't Amazon are creating brick and mortar stores as well, right? Yeah, because they also realize there is some, there's actually value to offline store stores. And in Amazon's case, it's, of course, you know, they have the bookstores now to, you know, to browse and to access reviews. Um, but they're also thinking about using stores as pickup points for, you know, fresh groceries that you order online and can conveniently pick up. Hmm. I think that's, I, I, I thought that's such an interesting model. And, and then, uh, I guess there's going to be, I mean, the millennials are the ages, I guess, 18 to 34, but, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be the next generation and any insight into what that generation might be leaning toward. Well, since they grew up with technology, they will definitely, that will dominate their, their future expectations. Um, so they will, and, uh, you know, as their kids will be growing, uh, their, their behavior might change. So, for example, we also see millennials really like to go out and dining. Um, and so millennials and, and hanging out with friends and family um, and millennials with kids as their kids grow up. So that might be, you know, they might have even more time for those kinds of mm. things. Um, definitely a convenience-oriented uh, generation. So thinking about how to make millennials' lives easier, uh, that will always resonate with with that segment. Um, and then also thinking about social media. They're way more uh, vocal. They share their experiences. They want to, you know, inspire people and share about their lives. And they're into so, it. They're, that, that's a big thing too, right? They're into the experience, and and so you know maybe doing a, a, having a trip or a vacation or something that is more memorable might be more valuable to them than just a car or a thing. They can Uber everywhere. They don't need to spend their money on a car. Absolutely. So it's we see we definitely see the trend away from you know material goods to experiences. To your point about memories. But also, uh, not to underestimate, is to because you can share it uh, online. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's cool to have this trip or the spa experience or, I don't know, like a fun fitness class or whatever it might be that you want to share on social media. But uh, I, I have heard people say, you know, why go to that if you, if you don't have a picture to post on <laughs> social media? <laughs> so in some ways, uh, social media might already influence people's choices in their in their daily offline lives. That's true, huh? Well, I appreciate your insight and uh really I think I think you've helped us. You've helped us figure out what we need to buy or at least how we need to be thinking about some of these differences. Denise Dolliff, again, thank you for all your time, your insights and we uh, we suggest the article How Millennials, Gen Xers and Baby Boomers Shop Differently. You can find it at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Just look it up. How Millennials, Gen Xers, and Baby Boomers Shop Differently. Might give you some fun insight into how to go about your own Christmas shopping. We will take a break, come back, and uh, do a little coaching corner as well as some more uh, crazy stories, including I think we will finally get to goat yoga. You won't want to miss it, folks. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends. Again, that's Yoda. Yo, 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 Yoda. That's what we're talking about, right? No. We're talking about yoga. Yoga. I think I think you can't hear me very well. What are you getting at? Nothing. Don't want to bring that up. That's a great song, though. May the force be your guide. Yeah, yeah, yo, Yoda. Uh, goat yoga. A lot of people, you know, love yoga, and uh, ordinary yoga can feel complicated enough sometimes, you know, with all the focus on breathing and the search for an intention that many yoga instructors ask students to reach deep within themselves to find. I have been telling myself that the one thing I've been missing from yoga is goats. You've been saying that to yourself? For years. Really? Yeah. Well, have I got an answer for you? All right. Goat yoga. It's hot. It's the new thing. Uh, (laughs) Goat has all the same benefits of yoga. Goat yoga does. Focusing on breathing, intention, all that, plus a half a dozen goats. You can't you can't have more fun than this. Mostly, by the way, miniature goats, all of them completely accustomed to people and our deeply strange habits. They wander around with their collars and name tags looking for affection or a bit of grassy kibble. You know, many yogis are vegetarians, so they usually have some vegetarian offering for these goats. But this whole thing started with a birthday party for some kids, some six-year-old kids. And a yoga, instruct, a yoga instructor had this idea that, hey, maybe if a way to get the kids to do yoga would be if I brought some little baby kids around. So it's kids doing yoga with kids. Okay. Yeah. And so there you have it. Out of Oregon, by the way. Right. <laughs> it would take place in Oregon. Yeah. Lainey Morse uh, was the founder of goat yoga. And she just, you know, it's 70 miles south of Portland. She had the kids come over. Didn't she also come up with Gogurt? Uh, I think that's, no, Goatgurt. Oh, Goatgurt. Okay. Those are two products that frequently yeah. get mixed up. Gogurt took off. Uh, selling off the shelves, goat gurt. Don't they love those little uh, plastic packages of of goat gurt? Don't the yeah, goats but that's love it? That's not actually what goat gurt is. What is it? It's it's the gurt of a goat. Oh, Package. I was thinking it was yeah. no, no, it's goat not yogurt. yogurt. No, no, there's no such okay. thing as goat yogurt. That's mm. gross. It's goat gurt. It didn't sell as well. Anyway, if you want to, we'll we'll post a video of. Uh, the, the cute goats, it's it's just – we've had a lot of sh- stories lately about goats. The lady that dresses her goat up like a duck. We had mm-hmm. that story yesterday. Now you can dress your, your goat up like a duck and, you know, get in the downward-facing dog position. That sounds like a psychedelic trip right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's – the fun thing about it is there's so many different poses. You know, there's the lotus Position the goatess. There's now there's the goatess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't they have a goat president too? Probably. I think his code name is Goatus. Yeah, yeah. There's POTUS, Flotus, Scotus, and if the first president, if the first, if the president had a f- goat, it would be the first goat. 
it would be Fagotis. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Check check the White House on that. Um, what if you had to pick a? If you had to pick your favorite, do you do yoga? Do you know much about yoga? I don't. Um, you know, because there never have been goats involved, so I've never had that much interest in it. Okay. There's there's some great positions um, that you can try. Uh, seated or standing, and it's really neat when you see a goat standing on its hind legs, mm-hmm. doing some of these poses. You know, um, it's it's life changing. You know, they also like to golf. They never like to be late for go tea time. <laughs> no, it seems like you're making light of this. No, because. These are real things. No, very, very real things. Goat cheese. Have you ever had goat cheese? Oh, I love goat cheese. Yeah. There's the upward-facing goat. There's the downward-facing goat. There's the right – there's the cat pose goat, the easy plow goat pose, half-moon goat pose, pigeon pose with a goat. You know, what do you call a, uh, a really reliable goat? I don't know what. A go-to goat. Okay. You're not taking this seriously. There's the half goat cobra pose. <sighs> Folks, this is stuff you don't get on any other show. Empty news, we call it, for the Matt Townsend Show. News. We'll take a break. We'll be back. 